Father, we thank you for the mercy you have shown to Percy, for your strengthening in him. We're so glad he's going to be back in the family home. We pray that all of the care package that is necessary to sustain his well-being there will be put together very quickly now. Thank you that Maurice was able to come to the breakfast yesterday. We pray for further strength in him too. We pray for others who are suffering. Maxine leading worship today with a frozen shoulder, a bad arm. Lord, strengthen her and help her. We look to you, Lord Jesus, for you are full of life. As the song we sang earlier said, when you come in, other things have got to change and go because there is life in you, resurrection life, power, authority in you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, here this morning to be our teacher, our instructor, the one who takes the words of Scripture and the words of a preacher and suddenly in our hearts, in our minds, we are hearing the words of God. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I'm going to pick it up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 today. And uh, verse 17 connects us back to verse 1 of chapter 4. Walk worthy of the calling that you have received. In Thessalonians, Paul puts it in this way. Walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthy of God. So in Ephesians 4, having added teaching about the ministry of the church, we looked at that last week, not just the leaders, the leaders are there to equip and train and release everyone to serve in some way or other, and the maturity that we are to attain to together, including maintaining the unity of the, of the Spirit, Paul now gives some very practical instructions to spell out some of the areas in which we are to walk worthy. I'm going to give you two headlines to begin with. Becoming a Christian, which is illustrated, acted out in baptism, we reject our old life and take hold of a new life in Christ. That's why it's called conversion. You're no longer running the old way, you're running the new way. You're no longer living in the old style, you're living in the new style. Becoming a Christian is rejecting an old way of life and embracing a new way of life in Christ. And then the second one is this. Because of the dignity of our destiny, we obey the Lord and we walk, therefore, contrary to the ways of this world. We will be different, which will not always be comfortable. But it's because we have a destiny which is dignified rather than damnation. We're not walking to damnation. We're walking to glory. So we will walk differently. Yes, amen. Let's start picking it up in Ephesians 4 verse 17. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Unbelievers, godless people, pagan people. Right? You should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding. It's like the lights aren't on. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They become callous and have given themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. 
Listen, if you're a Christian, you're no longer like everyone else. Now, that doesn't mean we should be haughty, self-important, boastful, looking down on others. We were the same. But we have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. But we can't live the way they, that we used to, the way of those who still do not know God. We come against some hard truths here in this scripture about what it is to be unconverted, unbelieving. Let me just headline them again. Unbelievers walk in the futility of their thoughts. There's no wisdom. There's no purpose. They're darkened in their understanding. Even when they see, they don't see. It's like they can't see. Even when they hear, they don't hear. They can't hear the truth. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, some of those things we read in Ephesians 1 and chapter 2 already. Not going to go back for the sake of time this morning. But because of the condition of their hearts and minds and souls, and really those expressions are very interchangeable in the scripture, the outcome of this godlessness, blindness, ignorance, and hardness is this. They become callous. I remember when I was at college, I, I volunteered for, for garden duty every morning because I hated housework and washing up and peeling potatoes and whatever else. So there were about four of us guys who volunteered. We were big permanent gardeners. We went out every, almost every day, wind, come wind or shine or snow, and we were digging and you know, and the God. Because of that, I got ridges of hard flesh on my hands. So much so that when people shook my hands, they'd say, oh my goodness, you've got hard hands. When you abuse something, you develop calluses. When you abuse your conscience, it becomes calloused. Paul describes it as having consciences which are as if they were seared with a hot iron. No longer able to feel became callous, and they gave themselves up to promiscuity, sexual lust, and to working of uncleanness, all kinds of sexual activity, and to greediness. That's a separate thing. Avarice, covetousness. There are two things mentioned here, sexual immorality and greediness, covetousness. And those two things are mentioned a number of times, particularly in Paul's writings. Paul uses these two things as like two pillars of, the, of, of how we recognize two main things that go on in godless Gentile society. That reminds me of Romans 1, and I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read it, in fact, from verse 16. I should have said 16 instead of 18. Romans 1, reading from verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and also to the Greek, the Gentile. For in it God's righteousness is revealed for from faith to faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, attributes that is eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show him gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. For even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males, in the same way, also left natural relations with females, were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know full well God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. For a few moments, we're going to think about sex. The Bible doesn't always put sex first in the list when it's addressing matters of sin, though it does here in the verse we're looking at today. It's not always the case. But here, this first real and practical issue of walking worthy is turning from the way of the world an unbridled appetite for sexual pleasure, which is so, so prevalent in our world. But I need to tell you, this is not a modern thing. Don't think we're getting worse than anybody who ever was before us. We're not. It would be hard to imagine a world more promiscuous, more impure, more pleasure-seeking for its own sake in terms of sexual behavior than the Greek and Roman societies that were around before the time of Jesus, during this time of Jesus, and after, during the time this letter was written, and afterwards. They didn't have the jargon of the so-called revolution of the 1960s or of our modern political correctness, but in the first century AD, there were really no moral boundaries in Gentile society. Anything went, any kind of evil and any kind of sexual impurity. I want you to think with me for a moment, because we hear these words, but we need to define them. Define these words, promiscuity, impurity, sexual immorality. You see, the problem is nowadays people have their own set of values, so those mean, the words will mean different things, or they reject them altogether as being inappropriate. What set of values do you measure them by? Is this or that sexual behavior wrong? If it is wrong, why is it wrong? What's the measure? I want you to refer you to Acts 15. In Acts 15, the council of leaders met at Jerusalem, the apostles and elders, to discuss what to do with all the Gentiles who were of Jesus. There was a party, a group of people in Jerusalem who said, they've got to be circumcised, the men have got to be circumcised, they've got to keep the law, they've got to become Jews to follow the Jewish Messiah. They had a council that met about it. The questions were, well, should they become under the law of Moses? Should the males be circumcised? Should they keep the food laws? Should they keep the 
festivals of Israel and Jerusalem make Levitical offerings to the temple? And the answer to all of those things was, no. I'm very grateful for that. But the council wrote a letter to all the believers and they required just a few necessary things of the Gentile converts, among which was this one, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, what did those apostles and elders understand by that phrase, sexual immorality? Well, I need to tell you that the New Testament isn't altogether new. It's built upon the old. And while the food laws have gone and the festivals have gone and circumcision has gone, God's moral law has not changed. He still holds the world to account by his Ten Commandments. The Lord Jesus told us that the word, the word of the law would not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Not one stroke of a pen, not one dot of a pen would pass away until all was fulfilled. The moral boundaries of human sexual behavior are not a matter of personal judgment or change in society. They are written in the scriptures. And in fact, the New Testament repeats and reaffirms most of the major points of God's moral law. I've given uh, there, I didn't put it in the back of all the notes, a summary of categories of sexual behavior and what the scriptures have to say about them. And if you've got one of those lists, you'll see that in the last column, New Testament references, how many references there are in the New Testament that reaffirm what was said in the old. It hasn't changed. It's actually restated. This is still wrong. There is only one sexual activity, one kind of sexual behavior, which God blesses, and that is the intimacy between husband and wife. It's the only one that's blessed. Here's a list. Let me just run through them. Within marriage, sexual relationships, sexual intimacy is blessed. Honorable. Does good. Without marriage, the King James calls it fornication. It's a kind of a dirty word than sexual immorality. It's a stronger word. Fornication. Whilst married to someone else, it's adultery. With relatives, it's incest, and the law curses it. With the same sex, it's called in the law an abomination, it's cursed. And there's New Testament references concerning homosexuality. Selling sex is called prostitution. Buying sex, again, the King James has a good old English word for that, it's called a whoremonger. Somebody who trades in with whores. Whoremongers go to hell according to the scriptures. Amen. Sex with animals. Oh, unspeakable. It's, it's in the law. It's abominated. It's cursed. And then, as well as all of those things, there's just general sexual impurity, uncleanness. Things that are, you, don't need to, you don't want to sit, spend your time defining, is this good or not good or whatever. Just unclean. Because it's not in the covenant relationship of marriage. It's unclean. Those are the biblical boundaries of sexual behavior. And those, therefore, are our Christian values. I make no apology for saying that. Those are our values. Because God hasn't changed his mind about those things. 
So we're to put away, if we're believers, all of what is alien to us and is foreign to God's law in terms of sexual behavior. But then there's this other factor of greed, avarice. Let's think about greed and covetousness and avarice. Greed, what Colossians says in a parallel passage to this one, is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. It honors something instead of God as our source of joy and comfort and security. I'll put this headline up for you. When a man makes pursuing gain his aim above pursuing God, he is an idolater. If you love money, you can't love God. Jesus said that. You can't serve two masters. You'll love one, hate the other. And the love of money isn't necessarily kind of, you know, rolling around in pound notes and going, oh, no, not, we don't have pound notes now, 50 pound notes. <laughs> oh, this is lovely. You love money because you haven't got it. Because all you can do is think about all day and night is getting it. That's loving money. Wanting more than you have. Greed, covetousness are so much part of our godless society, it's hard to imagine a world without it. I don't want to get into kind of economics much here, but, you know, commerce and capitalism and advertising depend upon people actually wanting more. They need to fill their hearts with something. And then the next thing, and then another thing, because actually they are without hope and without God in this world. So they're looking to fill something of the emptiness of their existence with things. That's why advertising works. Wouldn't you like a new... Oh, I know you've got a toaster, but wouldn't you like this new toaster? Okay, I'm being silly talking about toasters. What about cars? What about TVs? To be content with and to give thanks to God for what you have rather than strive for more seems to most people, frankly, ridiculous. And, okay, it wasn't in my notes, but I, 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 put, I thought about this. I want you to imagine just for a moment, okay, leap of imagination. Tonight we go to bed, we go to sleep. Tomorrow morning, every bit of covetousness and avarice and greed is burned out of our hearts by the sovereign work of God. Do you know what? The whole economy would change. Yes, it would. There wouldn't be much of an advertising industry. It would go back to the day, or Edwardian days, we'd say, Mr. So-and-so sells awfully good sausages if you'd like to try them. <laughs> Making polite offers of, would you like to buy my sausages? Would you like to buy my cars? Because they're, they're really rather good. <laughs> but, you know, this car is, you know, and all the rest. It would go, because there, there would no longer be the hunger that is being fed by that. We're told by economists and politicians in previous decades, particularly the 80s, that greed is good. Greed makes the world go round. You know, we need this motive. But we've experienced severe economic crashes, particularly in the UK and US, due to the runaway greed of bankers and others. So that no one, even though people still think like that, no one will admit it quite as loudly anymore. Our society is fueled by it, depends upon greed, avarice. People not just lusting sexually, lusting for possessions, hungry for more. And in those two words, Paul repeatedly across a number of his letters sums up our godless societies sexual lust, possession lust, greed, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. Well, to borrow a phrase from Jesus when he was talking about actually leaders lording it over people, not so with you. 
Not us. We can't go there. That's got to change. Let's jump over into the next chapter just for a moment. It says in Ephesians 5 verse 3, sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you. What? No, 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 no. What are you talking about? As is proper for the saints. Why? Because if you are a Christian, you are no longer a godless Gentile. You're a member of the Israel of God. If you're a Christian, you're no longer a child of the devil. You're a child of God. If you're a Christian, you're no longer in darkness. You're in the light. If you're a Christian, you're no longer under the rule of sin, but the rule of righteousness by grace through faith. If you're a Christian, you have died to your old way of life and you have been given new life in Christ. Amen. Ephesians 4 verse 20 says, but that is not how you learn. Now, my version I'm using... Holman Christian Standard puts the word about in there. The word about isn't there in the original. This reads a lot tougher and punchier than I'm reading it to you now. Let me take out the about. This is not how you learned Jesus, the Messiah. It's not how you learned him. Assuming you heard him, not about him, you heard him, and were taught by him because the truth is in him. Do you see the layers there? You know, when you came to the gospel, you didn't just come to a message to words, you encountered him. He was projected into your heart, into your soul, through the work of the Holy Spirit. You said, oh Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness, I need your help. You learned him. You heard him. You were taught by him. By the truth that is in him. And because these things are true, you now have new life. New life. How are we going to handle this new life? Next verse says this. You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. I prefer more literal, by the spirit in your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. In conversion and baptism, which, which acts out our conversion, we have died to our old way of life, we are crucified with Christ, we are now buried with him and raised with him to a new life, and we do that by down and up again, and old life gone, new life now to walk in. You put on the new self. It's like changing your clothes. The point is, you don't go back and pick up the old ones again. You don't change them back. You stay with the new ones. And you have to keep looking and rejecting the old ways. Of course, we continue to do this putting on and putting off. But we need to maintain that mindset. It's, that's the old stuff. I'm not going back there anymore. Here's a list of what Christians put off from a number of scriptures. Christians put off our former way of life. We put off works of darkness. We put off lying. We put off anger and wrath and malice. We put off all filthiness, both of physical behavior and of speech and of attitudes. All filthiness. And we put on the new self created in God's likeness. We put on says in Romans and Galatians, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put him on. We adopt a mindset that says, this life now is about Jesus. It's about becoming more like him. It's about following him. It's about learning to be, to be who he made me to be. 
We put on the armor of light, Romans, and again, Ephesians, we'll get that in a few weeks' time. We put on heartfelt compassion, what the King James says, bowels of mercies, what an expression that is. How? How do we do that? Two main reasons. Because grace teaches us to do this. The grace of God has appeared to all men, says Titus 2.11, teaching us to deny ungodliness, to say no to these things, and to live righteously and uprightly in this generation. The grace of God teaches us and empowers us. But then also, this is personal, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead, comes to equip us and empower us. Help is always available. It's the promise of Jesus. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will strengthen you. He will help you. It starts with our minds being renewed through the Holy Spirit and then constantly renewed by the truth, by scripture, by preaching, by even just good worship songs coming through your head. Your mind is being renewed. You keep focusing on the things that really matter and the things that are good because you're fighting other things. And we need to be engaged in that again and again every day of our lives so that the truth doesn't slip from us and the old way of life catches back up on us again. You are being renewed by the Spirit in your minds. Now that's something that turns up in Romans 12. Therefore, brothers, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Notice it doesn't say your hearts. Oh, this little bit of mine's really God's, but the rest of me, oh, I don't know about that. Your whole being, your whole... If, you, if your body turns up, the rest of you has to come. <laughs> Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your... I don't know why every, every Bible verse is spiritual. The word there is logical, reasonable. Do not be conformed to this age. We're not of this world anymore. We're not going to... We can't walk their way. But be transformed. How? By hard work? No. By the renewing of your mind. Yep. Learning to think new thoughts so that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. We're to be changed, Jesus said, from the inside out, from a renewed heart. Good man brings from a good heart good things because God has changed us inside. We've got to learn to let that new life be the one we're living, rather than the old life we, we were used to. Yeah. In Colossians, a parallel letter to Ephesians, Paul writes it in this way. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. And it doesn't go away, it needs dealing with. It's like a yappy dog, you've got to keep at least, you know, telling it to get down, or even giving it, a, don't accuse me of dog abuse here, give it a kick every now and again too. I'm talking about human nature. Down, dog. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. We read that in Romans 1. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. So don't go around accusing everybody else. You were the same. But now you must also put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Yeah. Do not lie to one another, since you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So now, 
Flipping back to Ephesians 4, that's the parallel passage. Flipping back to Ephesians 4, verse 25. Paul gives us a couple of examples of put off, put on. He's not trying to give us a whole big list. Just a few examples. All right? And they all have this pattern. Stop, start, why? Stop this, start that, because. Okay? They follow that pattern. There's only a couple of them. The first one is truthfulness. Truthfulness. Since you have put away lying, speak the truth each one to his neighbor, because we are members one of another. Uh, that is a quotation in the middle there. I put it in, in quotes to show it on the screen. Is a quotation from Zechariah 8.16, when Zechariah, one of the prophets of the Restoration, when the people came back from Babylon, were re-inhabiting Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, said, okay, you're doing all this work for the Lord, but you need to deal with your relationships with one another. We need some righteousness here. We need some uprightness here. You're not holy just because you're building the temple. We need to work out some holiness. And he so one of the instructions says to them, these are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true and sound decisions within your gates. You know, if this is going to be a holy city, you better learn to be holy people. That's the instruction of Zechariah. Within God's community, only truth should be spoken because we are members one of another. Because we belong together and we have community and connection with each other, all deceit is mutually harmful. I cannot deceive someone without doing harm. Even secret birthday parties are an awful pain, aren't they? <laughs> oh, what webs we weave when we begin to deceive, said Shakespeare, I think. Chris Ostom, who is a famous preacher, not that so, you've never heard of him, but he's in the AD 300s to 400 or so, he was a preacher in Constantinople. Absolutely incredible Bible preaching man, John Chrysostom. And he put it this way. Oh, I haven't put it up there. He said, if the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? If the tongue tastes what is bitter, does it deceive the stomach? Your own body doesn't work against itself, but if we deceive one another as the body of Christ, we're working against it ourselves. We're causing harm. We previously read in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him. That record refers there particularly to gospel Bible truth, but here it's general everyday truthfulness. We owe each other the truth because we are members one of another. Not just members of the same body, members of one another. It's more intimate, more close than that. It's not just turning up where there's a group of people and I'm part of that group of people. I have real relationships. I have real conversations where I need to trade truth in real everyday relationships. Truth, sorry, trust I should have put this as a headline. Trust depends upon truth. Doesn't it? Yeah. Someone deceives you, you don't trust them so much. The more they deceive you, the less you're going to trust them. Yeah. Speak the truth to one another because we're members of one another. The next one is anger and sin. Okay, deep breath. This is a difficult one. Ephesians 4 verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Notice, now, let me say straight away, that version there is accurate. It doesn't say do not be angry. It doesn't say do not be angry. It says be angry but don't sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Now that quote, there's a quotation there which really runs through the whole of verse 26 and it comes from Paul remembering the Septuagint which was the Greek version from Hebrew of the Old Testament which is the version that most people around the time of Jesus and Paul would have read, the Greek version, the Septuagint. It's written LXXX because that's Latin for 70. Septuagint. This is Psalm 4.4 in the version I'm using which is very similar to what Paul would have read and thought. Be angry and do not sin. Notice this. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Paul paraphrases that as don't let the sun go down on your wrath. You see, he's paraphrasing that. Be angry, but don't sin. Before, the, before it's time to fall asleep, sort it out. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Before sundown, which is when they went to bed in those days, wasn't it? Don't let the sun go down with you still angry and wrathful. Why? Because emotions that are unresolved tend to make us stew and brew. And we don't become sweeter, do we? It gets sweeter as the day go, days go by, says an old gospel song. But if you are filled with anger, you don't get sweeter. You get bitter. If, if, if what you're chewing over on your bed is resentment, you're going to get bitter. Yeah. If you've had a stressful day, a day which you've been angry and frustrated, don't take it into the next day. Jesus said, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Let each day count for itself and look forward to a new one. Before you sleep, be still, reflect in your heart, forgive those who offended you, cast your burdens on the Lord. And go into the next day without carrying the rubbish from the previous day. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Anger is an emotion, just like sadness or pleasure or joy. Or, it's an emotion. And emotions aren't necessarily wrong. We're not to be emotionless people. But they can be wrong. Or they can be right, and they can be good, and they can be bad. If we become angry, the question is, why? Why am I angry? And the fact is, for most of us, for most Caucasians, anger is usually about wounded pride. I'm offended. They've upset me. We feel threatened. We've lost face. Now, what that person did may have been hurtful. It may have been intended to be hurtful. But the only reason we experience the anger is because we have been wounded in our pride. Yeah. But the scripture doesn't say don't be angry. It says be angry and don't sin. This stop, start, why is don't let anger lead you into sin. Deal with it by the end of the day so that you do not give the devil an opportunity. If you're angry without a good reason, deal with your anger. If you're angry because something really did happen, here's how you deal with it. You forgive the person who hurt you. Hello, do you remember that one? Yeah. Lord's Prayer, we all know it. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who forgive us. Sorry you didn't hear that. As we forgive those who trespass, wound us. Yeah, you got hurt. Well, forgive them. Yeah. And ask the Lord to heal your hurt. I don't know any other, Branderson. I'm sorry, but Dr. David doesn't have any other prescription but that one. 
Because that's the only one I see in Scripture. Forgive anyone who's provoked you and hurt you. And go to bed in rest, in peace. Start a new day with a new clean heart. But there are times when it is appropriate to be angry. There are things we should be angry about. Sin, injustice, oppression, evil. We should be angry about, about uh, uh, forced slavery and prostitution. and things. We should be angry about those things. So someone should jolly well be doing something about them because we should be angry about it. The modern church, let me say this, is nowhere near serious enough about sin. We don't get angry enough about things that are thoroughly, thoroughly wrong and evil and destroy people's lives. We seem to be prepared to adapt to and adopt anything following society down the broad path that leads to destruction rather than the Lord's path that leads to salvation and honour. We are told in Scripture to hate sin, to fight sin, to kill sin. It's, it's very, very violent language. Put to death! You know? Don't, whether it's with an axe or a club hammer or a shotgun or a knife. Put it to death! Bury it! To be angry against sin. Let me define sin. Everything that dishonors God, defies his law, destroys his honor and image in man. Here's a quote, not from a very old Puritan, actually from a Victorian guy. He that will be angry and not sin, let him be angry at nothing but sin. Make sure the thing you're really angry at is sin. The wrong. The evil. But if you're going to be angry against sin, make sure that that starts with you, not with other people. Oh, them people over there. Oh, yes, them. No, 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 no. Jesus said, don't tell them about this, the, 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 the bit of sawdust in there, right? You've got a log in yours. To paraphrase. In fact, he calls us, if we do that, he calls us hypocrites. We're sin spotters. We can spot it everywhere else except in us. We may be stirred to fierce emotions about sin and evil, but even better, be stirred to fierce actions, radical treatment. Jesus talked about an axe being laid to the root of the trees. Start with your own attitude and behavior. To really deal with sinful habits, you may need to adopt strong personal disciplines. For example, teetotalism, because you used to drink too much. Celibacy, because you used to sleep around all the time. Open accountability to others so you get checked on and encouraged or, you know, caught up. You know, you know you're going to have to talk about what happened this week. So, oh, no, I've got to talk about what happened this week. But it's helpful to you. So you adopt such strong disciplines. Jesus talked about... If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your hand or foot causes you to offend, cut it off. It's better to enter life without an eye or a hand or a foot than to go to hell whole. Now when you take, it does, Jesus isn't really wanting one-eyed, one-handed people. He's saying we need to be radical at dealing with things that cause us to offend. Now if you're going to be radical in your lifestyle and deal with some issues that you know you need to deal with, other people think you're weird. What you mean? You don't drink at all? You don't? What you mean? You haven't had sex for how long? They'll think you're weird. Just give them a smile and tell them have a nice day. (laughs) 
Let me read this quote to you. That's the end of it. The central meaning of Jesus' advice, and he's talking about the hand and the eye and the foot, is to take decisive, drastic action against that habit, that thing, that person, that though pleasurable, is perhaps seemingly, and even seemingly necessary, is in fact ruining life for you. It is better to go limping into heaven than leaping into hell. When Paul adds to his quotation from Psalm 4 verse 4, don't give the devil an opportunity. You see, unresolved emotions, nursed hurts, offended pride, are like an open door for the enemy. Hello, I'm welcome here then, aren't I? Hello, you've been having a bad day. Oh, yes, you have. Oh, yes, they did, absolutely. Oh, you're right. Absolutely, yeah, of course you're right. He'll bring more of his stuff into you because you're open to hear it and receive it. You're not dealing with the offense. You're, you're hanging on to it and it's an open door. He will agree with your hurt. He'll justify your feelings. He'll confirm that you have a good right and reason to be offended. Your sense of being wrong. He'll justify you, absolutely. No, of course you don't want to forgive that person yet. Absolutely not. No, no, no. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. Don't you dare do that. Those people have it coming to them. He'll preach to you. He'll preach the wrong stuff to you. Meanwhile, the wisdom of God says this to you. Let it go. Forgive. Get, go to your bed in peace. Awake to a new day. Don't let the devil make use of this. We've got no one to do. Honesty. Actually, we've got two more and then we've finished. Honesty. Verse 28. The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. You see, when a thief stops thieving, he's an ex-thief. But when he works honestly, he becomes an honest man. The label's completely changed. There's a God-given dignity in work, in earning a living. In fact, theologians call it the sanctity of labor. I don't know if, I don't know if everybody even talks about upper class, middle class, lower class anymore, but let me give you my definitions, okay? Upper class were those who didn't work because of inherited wealth and whatever else. They, oh, no, we don't need to work. No. Only those people work. Middle class were those who didn't want to work, they didn't, perhaps didn't need to work, but they did because it was a good thing to do. And re but they retired early, you know, they, 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 they made their little bit and off they went, middle classes. And the working class, certainly in my younger days, were those who had no choice but to work all their lives. Bear in mind, we only brought in the old age pension early in the 20th century. So for centuries after centuries, people, died, people worked until they dropped, until they died. In the mindset of most Brits, I would say, over a very long time, work was only a necessary nuisance if you couldn't avoid it. If you, couldn't, if you could avoid work, good on you. But to the rest of us, it was a necessary nuisance. Well, you've got to earn a crust, haven't you? You've got to earn your penny. I don't know, I'm going to work again today. Get the attitude? Yes. 
Oh, I wish I didn't have to work. Bit of Midlands there in that one. Listen, God gave Adam work before he fell. Let me show you. This is before Genesis 3, before Adam's rebelled, before sinners entered into the world. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and oversee it. He was a gardener. He was a farmer. He tilled the land before he fell. Adam woke up in the morning and he had work to do. And it was work that was blessed by God. What happened in the fall was the work became cursed. It became hard work. The sweat of his brow, weeds and thorns. Thank you very much, Adam. I've got a thorn in my finger from yesterday. But to work and find reward and satisfaction through work is God's good design for us. We don't do well when we stop all activity, physical or mental. We're going to decline. We work not merely to fill out our own needs and wants, but so that we have enough to share with others in need, having, of course, firstly given our first fruits, our tithes to the Lord. This stop, start, why is don't steal any longer, don't do dishonest stuff, do honest work so that you have the opportunity to give to others rather than take from them. Rather than being grabbing from people, you know, whether it's being a bad landlord or whatever else, you're giving to people because you're working for an honest wage. Now, it depends upon an employer giving you an honest wage. That's the other side of it. Put off dishonesty. Put off hustle and trickery and ducking and diving and injustice. Put on honest work and work well for your income and for the glory of God. Work is good. Idleness, laziness is not good. In fact, Paul writes to Timothy, if anyone among you doesn't work, let him not eat. That's an interesting diet. I'm sorry, you can't have any too today. You didn't do any work. It would soon wake you up, wouldn't it? Okay, what shall I do? Okay. If he doesn't work, don't let him eat. Even him talks, Paul even talks about widows. He says, well, then make sure you've given them something to do with their time, with their day. We want to help them, we want to support them, but make sure you find them something to do. Every one of us needs industry. We need to be busy with something. Not pulled to pieces by it, overwhelmed by, by the pressure of it all, but actually getting on with something and coming to the end of the day and saying, I, I had a good day's innings today. I feel, I, I, feel, I feel good. I did something worthwhile. The last one. Next but last one. is wholesome speech. Wholesome speech. No foul language is to come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. What is foul language? Well, it includes obscenities and swearing. But in the scriptures, that kind of instruction is also about gossip, slander, backbiting, criticism, which is not honest criticism face-to-face. -face. It's behind someone's back, you know. Christians have been known for cleanness of speech. And in some societies, that will mark us out immediately as not being of the world, but having a new life in Jesus. In Chinese society, I am told, you know, the equivalent there of our four-letter words are so common that they're just used all the time. When, when people became Christians in China, I don't know if it's still true now, but there was a time when if people became Christians in China and their mouths became clean, people knew straight away, you, what's happened to you? 
And the Christians were nicknamed the clean speakers, the clean-mouthed, because their language was different to just about everybody else. There's a parallel in Colossians too. The, your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt. You're not, you're not trading against the truth here. You're being truthful, but you're being gracious, so that you may know how you should answer every person. This stop, start, why is stop speaking wickedly. Well, that's using bad language as we think of it, or saying bad things about people. Speak what is good to build others up so that you, they may have grace through your speech. A Christian has no business using the language the world uses. It's not, we shouldn't, no, that's not for us. It's part of that old life that must die. A new life of wholesome, clean speech, as well as honest speech. Because when we do these other things, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. You think, well, where's the middle bit? You know, stop this, start that. Well, the start is implied, really. Walk with the Spirit, obey the Spirit. Because you are sealed by him for the last day. What happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit? Let me explain that very briefly to you. He doesn't go away as such. I believe that's contrary to the scripture to talk about him leaving us all together. But when you refuse to listen, you no longer hear him speaking. When you choose rebellion and disobedience, you no longer experience his equipping. He's given to us as a helper. But if we're not knowing his help, there's generally a reason why, and we are usually aware of the reason why. We know what we need to straighten out. Yeah? Yeah? Don't, you know, don't think someone's going to come to you with a prophetic word, you need to straighten out. So you already know what you need to straighten out. But when we repent and ask for forgiveness and cleansing and power to change, he renews his work in us and through us. I believe that is the truth of God. So here's the conclusion today. Okay. These last two verses we're taking today summarize the others we've looked at. It brings us to a conclusion of Ephesians chapter 4. Really, there isn't a division. Ephesians 5 carries straight on, but we can't go that far. So to sum up here, Paul says, all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting, that's an interesting translation of that word there, and slander must be removed from you. This is not about, you know... Um, why are they here? It's like, no, no, no. You recognize when it's going on and deal with it. You know, you have to learn a new habit of not going to do that thing that way. I'm not, no, I'm not going to do that thing that way. I'm going to learn a new habit of how I deal with this. Along with all malice. And then positively, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So Paul ties together anger, bitterness, wrath, shouting, malice, slander. Earlier on talked about sexual impurity and greed, avarice, covetousness. Instead of living from a proud, sinful heart, live from a new, renewed heart fed by God's love. In Colossians it's written this way. Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved. In case you think, you know, Oh, oh, I don't know about all that. I don't feel good about myself now. Listen, listen to this language. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on 
heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Accepting one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your thoughts. Be thankful. Amen. Forgive, forbear, accept, correct, encourage one another, because we are loved in Jesus, we're forgiven and accepted through him. What you have freely received, again to paraphrase Jesus, go and give away for free as well. Grace. Restoration. To sum it up, Ephesians is about becoming who you are in Christ. All change, all process of sanctification is not so we earn God's favor. We have his favor. But his grace and the spirit are at work in us to change us, to become what he has already called us, his dear children, his holy ones. So, here's the, the crunch. What is it that you are aware of today that you need to attend to in putting off and putting on? Don't give up. Don't be depressed at this moment in time. Say, here, here I am, Lord. This is it. Now strengthen me. Help me. I confess my need. I confess my, my need to change in this. Lord Jesus, I come to you. How do you get grace from God? You come and ask. Ephesians, sorry, Hebrews 4 says, we even come boldly to ask. To receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. Remember, it's what you put your name to when you were baptized. To follow Jesus, to obey him, to live his way. He is our new life. We don't have a life that includes him. He is our life. He doesn't fill a corner. He fills it all. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you, Jesus as Lord. We just thank you so much for your love for us that put you on the cross to bear our sins away. And since we are forgiven all of our trespasses, all of our iniquities, we come to you now and pray that you may convince us in our hearts that we have the power through your grace, through your spirit, to put to death everything that is in any way sinful, that dishonors you, that defiles your image in us. And your grace comes to teach us to deny everything that's wrong and to live good, good lives that honor you. We long, we long to live with more confidence, with more dignity. But some of that is sometimes calls for a really radical attitude in our hearts. We will simply not put up with this any longer. There's a fight to be had here and there's a, there's a battle to be fi finished. I pray that in many of us, Lord, you'll put a radical attitude towards sin. That if necessary, we will get angry with it so that we stop doing it. Then in our attitude towards one another, we pray that we may learn how to be compassionate and forgiving, not judgmental towards those who are still struggling, but seeking to encourage them, Give example to them. Give prayer for them. Until we all come to maturity together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, you inspired the apostles to write such incredible things for us. We accept your authority, the word of Scripture, as being the word of God. And we bow our hearts to receive it. Amen.